this summer, we've taken a break from a series in Romans, and we're kind of pausing to look at some psalms, and particularly are looking at some psalms that, that might be less familiar. Um, we, Christians, you know, traditionally have loved the psalms, and you probably, when you go to Scripture um, to pray, you might open up immediately to the psalms, but there's some of them that we don't know maybe quite as well, and there's some that we go immediately to, um, and others that, that might be a little bit more obscure to us. And, and Psalm 10 is what we're looking at this morning, and um, it's one that was more obscure to me, um, but as I read it, um, I, I was deeply convicted by it and, so, and led to Jesus. So hopefully this morning as we look at it, uh, the same will happen um, for all of us. So we're going to look at God's Word this morning, Psalm 10. It's printed there for you in your bulletin. This is God's word. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide your face in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of His sight. As for all His foes, He puffs at them. He says in His heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under His tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in villages and hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Our God is kind enough uh, to give us his word um, because he deeply loves us and he wants us to know him. And so let's pray to him and ask that he would help us to understand. Father, um, we simply pray this morning that, that you would give us eyes that we could see and that you would give us ears that we may hear. Um, we pray that we would um, be led to your son, Jesus, that we would find um, our deepest longings um, satisfied and met in him and in him alone. We pray that that would change us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, a few months ago, about maybe a month ago, I had um, an appointment with the cable guy. And if you've ever had an appointment with the cable guy, you probably know somewhere 
um, where the story is going, right? It's going to be probably a little bit painful because when you make an appointment with the cable guy, it's not for a specific time. It's for usually a three-hour span where they may or may not show up. And so I had this appointment. It was a Saturday afternoon. I figured, you know, we'll get some things done around the house and wait for the cable guy to show up. And, you know, um, between 2 and 5, I think, was the appointment. 3 o'clock rolls around. 4 o'clock rolls around. 5 o'clock rolls around. 6 o'clock rolls around. Let's eat dinner. 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, so forth. Um, I guess he's not coming. And so we make another appointment. Same thing happens. Right? You know? The injustice that was shown to me. Make another appointment. Another appointment. The same thing happened. And so at this point, and you're feeling, you feel the tension right now, don't you? I mean, you've been in this spot, and I am, I'm starting, you know, I'm angry. Like, hours of my life have been wasted waiting on this cable technician. And so it's late, I believe a Tuesday night. I pick up the phone, and I call the dreaded 1-800 number uh, for this small little cable company. And you know that at night, if you call, they usually give, they, they farm out the, um, the help desk, basically. And so I, I navigate the menu, and I finally talk to a person, and it's pretty obvious um, when, I, when I hear their voice that they're, they're most likely not a Greenville native, right? Um, by their accent, um, they're probably on the other side of the world. And so... I don't care. I just start giving my rant. You know, um, I have waited hours for this cable technician to show up, and he has not shown up. And I go on, and I pause, and I wait for a response. And the response in broken English back to me was, and I, w- I won't try to do the accent. But it was, I'm so sorry that we have inconvenienced you. We will do everything in our power to make this right. And at that point, I just felt stupid, right? I felt like, you know, I started to think, I I literally paused and I started to think, I wonder where this woman is. I wonder what maybe her day has looked like. I wonder what her commute to work was like. Did she wait for a bus and get on it to only find that there was no place to sit and it was crowded? Did she finally make it to this Um, lifeless, drab, hideously lit box full of cubicles and have to sit there all day and listen to Americans complain about their cable. And I felt silly, and I felt spoiled, and I felt kind of stupid. And the thing that, that, that struck me the most, though, is that I realized in many ways is what I felt was blind. Because I didn't have to think about this. It was just my natural reaction when I was inconvenienced. Some of you might be um, familiar with, a, with an author by the name of David Foster Wallace. He's no longer um, alive, but he was a brilliant young um, author. And he became kind of famous definitely for his novels, but, but also he gave this speech back in 2005, I believe, at Kenyon College. And it was a graduation speech. And he was talking to all these, you know, um, very, very good school, very brilliant students. And he's telling them, you know, you're about to go into the day-in, day-out trenches of the real world. And you already know how to think. And that's obvious by where you went to school. But he said the thing that is hard for you and the thing that is hard for all of us is not, is not necessarily how to think, but choosing what it is that we will think about. 
And the biggest obstacle to choosing what it is that we will think about is that our natural mode is to see ourselves as the very center of the universe. And he put it like this, and this quote's on the front of your handout. You may have read it and thought it was kind of odd, but he says it this way, everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe. The realest, most vivid, and most important person in existence. I thought of that when I thought of this woman and I thought of my response because I thought my anger revealed the fact that I do think, and oftentimes, that I am the center of the universe. And it's really what the Word tells us about sin is what sin does to us. And so when I read this psalm, I found it very interesting that David is angry, right? He's so angry. And I love that he's allowed to be angry, and I love that at the beginning of the psalm, as we've seen, as we've studied the psalms, he's allowed to cry out to God, where are you? What are you doing? Why aren't you doing something about this? But David is angry about what I think is the right thing. That we see in the psalms that what we call righteous anger or righteous indignation. And, and David, who is a king, hasn't forgotten that he is also David the shepherd. That he started his days out in the field with muddy sandals, right? And was brought in by the grace of God. And so David is one who always remembered the weak. And he remembered the poor. And he remembered the oppressed. And so this morning, as we, as we look at this psalm, as we kind of take this trip with David um, through this psalm, I, I want to look at the wicked that he talks about. Who are these people? And then I want us to look um, at ourselves. And what does this show us about ourselves? And then I, was, I want us to, to, to look at Jesus. Let's look at the wicked first. When, when I use the word wicked, or maybe even when I read this psalm and you, and you heard that, that word um, ascribed to a group of people, You know, there's a a few reactions that we might have to that, but I think one of our reactions sort of just in the age that we live in is that we kind of cringe, right? I mean, to call somebody else wicked is sort of one of the biggest no-nos. Like if I'm having lunch with you and you tell me some things you're struggling with and I'm like, you know, the problem probably is that you're wicked, right? Um, it, It might not take too kindly to that. We don't use the word like that very often, but David is continually calling these, these, these people wicked. In fact, if you look at the page that, that in your bulletin that this is printed on, verses 2 through 11, right, take up the bulk of the psalm where basically what he's doing is just describing to you what the wicked, who the wicked are, what they're like, what they do. And just listen again to, to some of this description. And he says they, they hotly pursue the poor. They boast of their own desires. They are greedy for gain. They're full of deceit and oppression. They murder the innocent. They watch for the helpless and and draw the poor into their net. And you go, we could go, he goes on and on, and it's such a vivid, harsh description. That when you read it, you might be kind of going, you know, like, yeah, like I hate the wicked too. Like this is horrible. And you also might, when I read this over and over again, I started to, you know, we have images that come into our mind of like, what, what, what is he talking about? He's talking about what he's, he's angry about, those who have, who have so much and yet continue to pillage and to abuse those who don't have. 
that they have, but they're abusing those who don't have. And, and what came to my mind was I used to have a commute to work where I would drive through a, a, pretty, a pretty rough part of town. And one of the things that you notice, you know, when you drive through a, a poorer section of town is that, that a, lot of, a lot of the businesses moved out. There's a lot of vacant buildings. And it was, I think it was one summer I started noticing there was business moving in, and I was kind of wondering what this business would be. Um, there was quite a few of them, and they would paint the building really brightly, and they would take the glass in the window, and they would mirror it out so it would catch your attention. There would be streamers. It's like a celebration, a grand opening, right? And there were several of these on my commute. And all of them, and you know what they are, they were all checks cashed, title loans. And I didn't really pay that much attention or think much about it until every day I would pass them. And I'm like, why are they here? Because they're there to prey upon the poor, right? They're there to, to take a simple service and, and, and charge an exorbitant, exorbitant um, interest rate. So those who have are going into a place of those who don't have, and, and they're and they're continuing to pillage them. They're continuing to, to, to take people who are stuck in a cycle of poverty and keep them in it. I don't know I, who, what you think of. I, I think of, you know, whatever your politics may be, um, you think of immigrant workers who may be highly skilled at what they do and yet are charged probably way less for their work. And maybe even those of us who have are kind of going, well, I can get a better deal over here because I don't have to charge them as much. If you go to, the Pro- if you go to Proverbs, in Proverbs, there's out of 31 chapters, 14 of them make reference to how we who have treat and relate to those who don't have. And one of the things it says, I think, that jumped out, one of the verses that jumped out at me when I was reading through Proverbs is it says in Proverbs 13, the fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. That they, that they have gifts, that they have things to offer, that they have skills to use, but it's continually swept away through injustice. That it's like a, a wheel that can't get traction no matter how hard it might spin. And you could go on and on, and maybe, you know, this is conjuring images in your own mind of what, uh, of what David is describing. I mean, we have endless examples of this in our culture. But what I want us to focus in on before we look at ourselves is that the root of all of this, the root of the one who is wicked, he makes reference to it several times in the passage, is that he's, he's one who is, is, is essentially a practical atheist. It, he says, you know, one, at one point, verse 4, there is no God, right? But then you go, well, he also talks to God in the passage. He says, basically, you're not going to call me to account. I can do whatever I want. And in this age, you know, to be an atheist would have been extremely rare, that most people would have believed in some sort of deity or higher power. And so he's sort of saying when he says there is no God, he's saying you may be there, but I don't care. I can, do, I can still do what I want, that I can continue building my own kingdom without any regard to you, that you're not going to call me to account. Of course, practical atheism does what? Is it puts us, it puts him or her at the center, in the place of God. 
It, it, to, to be one, to, to use other people for, for whatever we want so we can get what we need, what we get what we think we need. And so, in essence, who are the wicked in this passage? The wicked are, are those who are practically playing out the implications of not believing that God is who He says He is. That they're just practically playing out the implications of not believing that God is who He says He is. And so you go, okay, well, what, is, what does that have to do with us? Because you may read the passage, and this is how I read it at first, and I go, you're on to something, David, and I'm angry about that too. But Scripture always does something when we begin to read it and we begin to look at it, and it always makes us think about ourselves, right? Um, it has, that, it has that, that habit of doing that to us is that it makes us look. It's like a mirror where we look at our own hearts. And I think that when we look at the wicked in this passage um, and then we look at ourselves, that, that you know, there's probably no one in this room who like, meets that description in the sense that we hotly pursue the poor or you murder the innocent. I don't know. Maybe there is. Maybe there isn't. But I think that when we start to, to unravel the root of the, the heart that is wicked, that what we find is that there's a lot of that same seed that is also in ours, Right? is there's a lot of that same um, practical atheism. I read a novel not long ago called The Interestings, and it came out last year, and it was basically kind of traced this group um, of friends who met at a camp and kind of traced the rest of their life. And one of the, one of the characters was the, the thing that made him, they were kind of a group who thought they were interesting, and the thing that made him interesting was that he was a, a really gifted artist. And he was a, his, his medium was, was cartoon. He was a cartoonist. And kind of as a child, he was brilliant. And as he grew up, that, that brilliance caught the attention of others. And he became famous because of his cartoon. And it became a show. And it was picked up. And it ran for se- like just season after season after season to where his kind of empire was enormous. Like the amount of like you think of a show like, I mean, this is old now, but when I think of a cartoon that ran, ran, and ran, was like The Simpsons, and like how much like of a force that was, like ran for I don't know how many seasons, and all the products that it produced, and all these things, and so this man, you know, had built this this empire, and in the in the novel, he was a very moral, he was a very kind person, um, and one one summer he decided to take a vacation with his family. They went to to Asia, they went to Thailand, I believe, and while he was there, he thought, you know, I'm going to go visit the factories where some of, some of the things for the show are made. And he can't stay but, but, but a few minutes because what he saw was 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds busy at work building his kingdom. And, you know, he walked away from that, and you go, he wasn't diabolical, right? I mean, he, he wasn't setting out to hotly pursue the poor on the other side of the world. But, but in the midst of, of building his own little kingdom, he, he never considered what it was costing other people. And I think that, this, that that's the result, right? For, for us, the result for us is that when we become the center of the universe that what happens is we become practical atheists because we say, God's not, he's not really going to call me to account. And it really, for us, really what it is is, is that we choose something else to worship, right? 
to go back to, to David Foster Wallace and this quote that I think, and this man was not, from what I can tell, read a biography of him, from what I could tell, he was not a Christian, but he nails what it looks like for us to worship the wrong thing and what it does to us. And he says this, the insidious thing about false forms of worship is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving, and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom, the freedom to be lords of our own tiny, skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of the universe. And some of us, when you read that description, you know what he's talking about, right? Right? That you're not out intentionally um, looking maybe to harm other people, but, but you might be operating on a default setting that you're not even aware of. And something happens, and maybe it's your anger, and it's maybe like for me when you start to see the things that I actually, when I feel like somebody is crossing my path, or I feel like there's injustice aimed at me, how quickly I might flare up. And it begins to show me that my default setting is that I have put myself at the center. And and, and the question is, what is that costing other people? The people that I'm actually called to love, and yet maybe just ignoring or maybe worse. We go, well, how do we fall, you know, how do we slip into that? How do we slip into that default setting? How do we slip into that practical atheism if we're sitting here and we're sitting here in church? And we're asking ourselves that question of, like, how are we um, sometimes like the wicked? And I think that the easiest way for us to do that is just simply to forget that we are poor. That we are the poor. That you, you hear this passage and you hear the wicked and what he says is basically, you know, he describes, he's boasting in his prosperity because he thinks it makes him secure. And it's so easy for for me, and it's probably easy for you to slip into that mode to where you gain a little foothold in life, um, you get a degree, you maybe get a job, you, you do something that makes you feel like you're capable, and you slip into this delusion that we're actually under control, that we begin to live practically like he's not there. We forget that, that at this very moment, Every molecule that enters into my nostrils as I breathe in is actually, you can almost imagine God just sort of pushing it in there. And at any moment, he could say, stop. That's how frail we are. (laughs) That's how poor we actually are. That's how weak we actually are. And yet we slip into this default mode that we actually can do something on our own. That's why Scripture continually says that God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. That He opposes those who think, who think that they can survive by their own strength, but He gives grace to those 
who come to Him and say, I can do nothing without you. So how are we like the wicked? I think that most likely we're like them in our propensity to live by our own strength. And to live practically as if God doesn't exist. And if we follow that thread like this character, Ethan Thigman, what we, Thigman, what we find is that we probably too are using up others for our own gain. And so we go, well, what do we do about that, right? What do we do about that if, if, if we are, are capable or maybe even culpable in this? You've probably been, if you've been around downtown Prez long enough, you know that um, the answer to that is that we're not simply going to, let's, okay, let's, let's whip ourselves back into shape. Let's see if we can feel so bad about that that maybe we can force it to somehow change. But instead, when we look at something out there and we see that it's wicked and we look in our own hearts and we see that there's the seed of that in me as well, then what we do is that we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus said, all of this points to me. All of the Scripture points to me. And you hear David in this psalm at the end where there's these these last few refrains where he begins to cry out. And he says, you do know, and you do see, and you do remember. He says, arise, O God, and you will hear the fatherless, and you will hear the oppressed, and you will do something about this. And I think the the, the crazy thing about that cry, that plea that David makes for for, for justice, is that he had no idea, he could not fathom how that was going to be answered. He could not comprehend the lengths that God would go to answer that cry. That who would have guessed? Could David have guessed that God himself said, yes, I hear your cry, and the way that I'm going to answer it is that my son is going to take on flesh, and he is going to become poor, and he is going to become the outcast, and he is going to put himself into the hands of of the wicked, and they are going to beat him, and they are going to spit upon him, and they are going to use him up. And he is going to do it because you are poor. And this is the only way that you can be made well again. This is the only way that you can be rich again. That the one who spoke all things into creation enters into creation, who enters into a womb, is born in a stable, and lives a life of poverty. And why does he do that? Because He loves you. He loves you. And you see that Jesus in His life, the way that He builds His kingdom, it is the opposite of the way that we build ours. That Jesus gives His life away. That He gives and He gives and He gives and He humbles Himself and He empties Himself and then He chooses the weak things of the world to pour Himself into, to restore them and to renew them and then to send them back out. And He says to them when He sends them back out, He says, you're going to have to take up your cross too and follow after Me because every, all the wealth that you need is right here. I've already given it to you. All the riches of all heaven now belong to you, that Paul says that you are now seated with Him in the heavenly places, that you are a co-heir with Christ, and that everything that is coming to Christ is now coming to you, and he's saying, what other security do you need? But I think one of the beautiful things about Jesus as well is that He also loves the wicked, right? 
He goes to the poor and you see him over and over again. You see prostitutes weeping at his feet and you see him touching the eyes of the blind and you see him touching the leper and making them well again and you see him telling the crippled to get up and walk. But you also see him at the end of Luke going to a man named Zacchaeus who was one of the most wicked men in his culture who, who preyed upon the poor and preyed upon his own people so that he might line his own pockets. And Jesus comes into a village and he walks down the street and he looks up and he sees this man and he says, I love him. And I'm going to go eat at his house. And when Zacchaeus tastes of the riches of Jesus, what does he say? He says, half of my stuff I give to the poor. If I, if I mistreated anybody, I'll repay them four times. Because I have found something here that is so much greater than what I thought I needed. And today, I think, well, let's, let's leave by just asking these questions. Do, do we know that we're poor? Do you know that? There's a lot of things that hide it from us, that delude us, that drive us into living in a default mode. Do you know that you're poor? Do you know that you're wicked? And then do you know that you are loved? you know that you're loved? And if we answer yes to all of those things, if we continually answer yes to all those things, what we begin to find is that we are people who start to change. That we move out of the center of the universe and Jesus is put in so that we might go into the world and we might follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we ask that you would convict us um, we ask that you would lead us um, to your son, Jesus. And Father, we pray that we would find there all the wealth, um, all the riches that we could ever um, possibly need. We ask this in his name. Amen.